So even though it's a time where we have a lot of personal time for retreat, personal practice, we still come together on the moon days and the half moon days. Time to think of the fundamentals of our practice. What makes for fruitful practice when we're living on our own, staying on our own? You can see what you learn when living in community provides you with the stability, the discipline and the skills that allow you to live on your own successfully. And living in the monastic community, we're training in what we call the core what? the monastic regulations, the practices, the ways of training that we inherit from our teachers, from Ajahn Chah. And also the practice of Brahma Vihara Dhamma. Metta, Karuna, Mudita, Upeka. Even though we often just talk about Metta, it refers to the other qualities as well. And the Buddha gave us metta as our vehicle, compared it to a vehicle, a yana, that takes us, carries us through our practice. Just as any successful family living together in harmony with peace. We'll have a lot of metta between the members of the family. So in a monastery, for a monastery to be living and working well as a community, there has to be metta, Brahma Viharas, as a foundation. Much of our training, the Korwat, the Vinaya, is based around developing the Brahma Vihara Dhammas, using them, nourishing them as skillful states of mind, not just in meditation, but also in our daily practice relating to other people and to the wider world around us. One example the Buddha gave of a community where the monks are practicing properly with an attitude of metta. The time you visited the monastery 
where Venerable Anuruddha was staying near Kosambi, uh, Kosala. Anuruddha spending the Vasa with Nandia and Kimbila. And the Buddha came to visit them to see how they're doing. Asked Anuruddha, how are they doing? He said, oh, our minds are all as one. We live as one. And the Buddha asked, well, what does that mean? And well, we have a mind of metta for the other members of the community. Make them as important as ourselves. So, for example, he said, if we one of the monks is washing robes, has to chop the dye wood or chop wood and prepare a fire. The other monks will set aside their own personal business to come and help that monk out of metta. Or if a monk needs to fire his bowl the other monks will set aside their personal business to come and help. When the monks talk about each other, they only talk about the good things. They leave aside the bad things, the faults, the weaknesses of the others. They only talk about their good points, the inspiring things. I said, this is what it's like, our minds are one. On the outside, on the inside, we act as one. This is how the Buddha, and the Buddha praised that, and this is a very good way for Sangha to live together. Because it develops the right atmosphere in the monastery, where we take care of our own practice, but we take care of the others as well. Taking care of the others is part of our own practice. Another important aspect the Buddha emphasized for living in the community is developing contentment, particularly with the four requisites. Learning to practice moderation in the use of the requisites, wisely reflecting on them. Mindfulness in the use of the requisites. Mindfulness in the way we obtain our requisites. Right livelihood. Buddha says when we're wisely reflecting on the requisites, then our mind is at ease content. We have enough, make do with what we've got, food, lodgings, robes, medicines for sickness. Even the Buddha himself was an example of this. Practiced moderation in the use of requisites. One time he was 
traveling in the foothills of the Himalayas, in staying overnight in a forest. It was a cold northern Indian winter's night. And in the morning a hunter came past, saw the Buddha, saw that he'd been sleeping out, just using his robes, using a bed of leaves. Asked him, did you sleep well and at ease last night? The Buddha said, yes, I'm one of those who always sleeps well. One of those in this world who always sleeps well, sleeps at ease. Because he was contented with his lifestyle and the requisites he had. You can see the practice of monastic training is emphasizing the development of these qualities in Brahmaviharas and in contentment, moderation. And these are skills we're learning, not necessarily automatic. We have to put effort into developing metta, developing contentment. You have to reflect on the lifestyle, reflect on these qualities to bring them up. It takes skill, so you have to give it time, use our own intelligence to direct it to bring up these kind of skillful qualities of mind. And just like any job you do in the world, you go to you apply and get a job in the world, you need to learn that trade, that skill, learn the information, learn the skills of that particular job. And as your experience grows and you apply yourself to it, then you can do it well. If you do it well, then you'll get paid, you may get promotion. If it's a business, you might make more profit and so on. A monk is the same. We have to develop the skills of monastic living. Learn how to develop the Brahmaviharas in daily life, in our meditation, in our speech, in our actions. And develop contentment with the lifestyle, with the requisites that are provided for us, the place, the people around us. We all come from different backgrounds, different countries, different towns. None of us were related before we came here. But we have a single aim. We're interested in the Buddhist teachings and interested to find true peace, happiness. But still we have our karmic accumulations. We have our sense of self, Sakaya Ditti. So living together at first, there may be some differences of view, differences of opinion and habit because of our backgrounds. So we use these skillful ways of training the Buddha gave us. The core what? 
the contentment, the metta, to deal with that. We learn how to live peacefully in a community. We learn to attend to our duties, look after our requisites, keep them clean, maintained, look after our lodgings, attend to the group activities, come to the meetings, the meal, the chores. We learn to speak and act with mindfulness and wisdom. In a monastery we learn sometimes we have to speak when it's time to teach or it's time to give advice or help in the running of the monastery. Other times we have to learn how to be quiet. We eat in silence. Sometimes we meet in silence. It's a bit different from the world. The world is characterized by a lot of chatter. Just like the animals and the birds in the forest always chattering and making their own noises. You go out into the world, people are always chattering. A lot of it is not that useful what the Buddha called Sampapalapa, idle or fruitless or useless chatter. As monks we're learning to cut that out, so we, we don't talk when we eat. There are those times of day when we don't talk, we're silent. Other times we do talk, but when we talk, we talk about Dhamma, things that are useful, supportive of the practice. We ask questions, we discuss, sometimes we talk about running the monastery. All of this comes into the practice of what we call korwat, or the monastic training. If we put effort into all of this, then when we go and live on our own, go back to our kutis, practice alone, we already have some Stability, a good foundation, personal discipline, personal mindfulness. And we know how to reflect on Dhamma. Ajahn Chah says if we train well in the basic duties of a samana, then when we're on our own or when we're in, whether we're on our own or we're in a group, it's the same. Our mindfulness doesn't change, our behavior doesn't really change. We're disciplined and committed to the practice when we're on our own. We're disciplined, committed to the practice when we're in a group. We keep the precepts on our own, just as in public. All the aspects of group practice, group training in the monastery, you can see, support you if you're living on your own. You're learning how to sit meditation for a period of time without stopping. To walk meditation, sit meditation. Learning chanting. We learn not only to be mindful of the Pali and the translations, we reflect on the meaning. So if you've learned some chants in group meetings and you go back on your own in your kuti, you can chant 
reflect on those chants. They can bring you some steadiness of mind and some insight when you're on your own. Part of the practice is the development of mindfulness. Mindfulness, clear comprehension of what we're doing. So all the monastic training is helping you in that, helping you to remind you and be aware what are you doing at different times in your day, what's the right way to do things, where's my mind, what am I saying, what am I doing, what am I thinking at different times. Again, whether you're in public or on your own, a practice is always about coming back to the present moment, developing this quality of mindfulness. Four foundations of mindfulness, satipatthana, mindful of body, feelings, the mind itself, and then dhamma. <coughs> objects of mind, phenomena. When we read it in the suttas or in, hear a talk, it sounds like a lot, it can be confusing, complicated. But if you just take the practice of mindfulness about being aware in the present moment what you're doing from moment to moment through your day. It's more straightforward. The four foundations of mindfulness come out of this, in being mindful as you walk, as you sit, as you eat, as you bathe, as you clean your bowl, as you put your robes on, you're going here, you're going there. All of this is where we're developing mindfulness. Over and over again, returning to the present moment, using meditation techniques, and also clear comprehension, just learning to be aware and understand what we're doing from moment to moment. And we'll start to see as much as we see the good things, we also see the weaknesses of our own mind. And most people come into the practice hoping for states of bliss and peace. But really the first step in the practice and the development of mindfulness is recognizing your own weaknesses recognizing kilesa, unwholesome states of mind, unwholesome behavior or inappropriate behavior, body, speech and mind. That would be success, first step, first stage of success in our practice is when we see our own lapses of mindfulness. We recognize them, we're becoming aware of them then we can start to see cause and effect in our own mind. 
See how lapses of mindfulness, unawareness, delusion or avicca lead on to suffering. The Buddha himself said when he was practicing, he, one of the practices he did was to learn to separate in his mind what is a wholesome thought, kusala, what is an unwholesome thought, akusala. And the most basic reflection we do as we chant, when we chant the funeral chants, kusala dhamma, akusala dhamma. It's the most basic function of mindfulness, turn to become more aware of our own state of mind, what we're thinking, whether it's wholesome or unwholesome, and the speech and the actions that flow on from that. This is where wisdom arises, right view, right understanding. Once we establish mindfulness, and then we reflect, is this wholesome or unwholesome? Unwholesome thought is always considered to be samudaya, the cause of suffering. Wholesome thought is maga, the practice that will lead to the end of suffering. We're constantly returning to our own moods and thoughts and intentions to recognize these two, two things. Samudaya and Maga, over and over again. By establishing mindfulness, then the next moment wisdom can arise to know oh, this is Samudaya, this is something to be abandoned, changed, given up, replaced with something more wholesome. Or to know that Maga is present, this is wholesome, this is conducive to the arising of insight over and over again this is a practice that we're doing when we're in the group situation we often find our mind is caught out by different experiences that we come across pleasant unpleasant things people say and do around us what we ourselves are saying and doing, often things seem to happen very fast and in an uncontrollable way. Still we have to practice mindfulness, become more aware of our own actions, our speech or our mental reactions to experience. Then when you go back to your kuti and you're on your own, you're noticing your own internal recollections of things, particularly memories, perceptions that we carry around. Pleasant experiences we've had, pleasant sights, sounds, taste, smell, touch. They leave an impression which will come back up in our mind when we're on our own. How much of our practice when we're on our own is dealing with memories, perceptions that stimulate attachment, craving attachment. It's unpleasant experiences, we remember them. What people have said and done to us, the way we judge things as good and bad, pleasant, unpleasant, what we like, we don't like. It'll all come up when we're back at our kuti. 
So when we're on our own, a lot of it is just internal, on a very refined level, dealing with memories, perceptions that stimulate different moods. When we're out in a group, it's often just very quick reaction with pleasure or displeasure to situations and people around us. The practice of mindfulness then is a lot of it's about learning to speed up. So in public we learn to practice sense restraint, to guard our senses because this is where this is where different reactions are coming up. What we see, what we hear. So learning to be mindful as we hear, as we see, which takes practice. Learning to establish mindfulness when we're in a group situation and also to reflect, use wisdom. Not just to react always with pleasure and displeasure, or excitement or boredom. But actually to establish mindfulness, what's going on and then reflect on it. If you have displeasure with other people around you, don't just keep getting caught into the same old unwholesome state. Reflect on it. Recognize that this is suffering. This is the cause of suffering. This is un, an unwholesome state of mind. How it might lead on to speech and action. Reflect on that. Find skillful ways to change that state of mind you're unhappy with somebody else, come back and look at your own mind and see the own, your own unhappiness when you're caught into negativity. When you look back at that person and try and see them with more empathy, more compassion, if they're saying or doing things you disagree with, don't like, maybe there's their own conditioning, their own, their own experiences leading to that happening. Try and understand them more, so you can let go. Or sometimes you just simply ignore it, ignore what other people are doing, so your mind isn't holding on to anger or negativity. Pleasurable experience is the same. If it's pleasant sights, looking at members of the opposite sex, you catch yourself doing that, will turn away seeking them out to talk to. Don't do that. Teach yourself to ignore, to let go. If it's material objects, requisites or food, again, catch yourself the excitement over mealtime when you eat one meal a day. Or the desire for requisites that you haven't got, wanting better things, different things. Catch that turn away to bring up contentment with what you have got already. Just think about the burden of want, always wanting more, better, different things. If we're not able to practice like this when we're in a group, then we have to do it when we're, not, we're on our own. So we 
Maybe just practice restraint and patience in the group and then when you're on your own at your kuti then you have to recollect and bring up those states of mind again and really contemplate them and see Achillesa as Achillesa, craving as craving, attachment as attachment, recognize them for what they are. Greed, anger, delusion. Sometimes we have to go over old experiences. Sooner or later they'll come up anyway into our consciousness if we're practicing mindfulness. Sometimes we wonder where is delusion, where is it coming from, it's that moment where the mind falls into craving, some kind of desire for or against, that's where delusion is, that's where suffering comes from. Why is it so fast sometimes, we fall into a mood so quickly, it's because of delusion. Why does that mood stick in the mind? Because of delusion. What's the way out of delusion? Well, bring up the Arya Satya Dhamma. Bring up Dhamma. Establish mindfulness and then reflect with wisdom. You recognize delusion and what it's doing to the mind. Bringing up states of greed, anger, jealousy, hatred and so on. As we practice then we become more skilled in seeing what we need to do. When mindfulness is weak we have to be honest, put more effort into bringing up mindfulness. Go away, do more sitting, more walking, put attention on the breath, really bring the mind to the present moment. If we're not understanding things we're confused go away and read some Dhamma or listen to some Dhamma and then reflect on it. And reflect with your own wisdom so that Dhamma becomes part of you. First it's just external but then you have to bring it up so it becomes internal. You're actually seeing and knowing the Dhamma that you've previously heard. Now you're seeing it for yourself. This is true wisdom. Wisdom is tiring for the mind because we establish mindfulness and then we contemplate and that contemplation involves movement so it requires energy, effort. Whatever you're contemplating, whatever aspect of the Four Noble Truths, the Five Candors, it will drain the mind as you contemplate. So then you need to go back and re-establish mindfulness. This is the practice of samatha and vipassana. Samatha is the resting of the mind, just focusing on a simple object, the breath, or the brahmaviharas, or buddho.
everybody is different. Some practitioners find they can quickly calm the mind with samatha practice. The mind just quietens down. Many others who are used to thinking a lot have to gradually calm the mind, talking to themselves, using Dhamma reflections, calm the mind down, calm the mind down until it stays with its meditation object. Either way, we have to work just to learn to calm the mind, give it some rest, just basic mindfulness practice. Mindfulness as we're sitting, mindfulness as we're walking, gathering the mind's energy together. Little by little, as we do this, then the mind becomes more one-pointed, ekakata, jitta. And this one-pointedness is what makes the mind feel more firm, more stable, even if there's not much wisdom yet, at least the mind feels, feels firm enough, stable enough to start contemplating and seeing things, knowing things, recognizing things. When there's no mindfulness, it's very difficult to contemplate. The mind's all over the place, just reacting to things, caught up in its own emotions. When you can stabilize the mind and bring it to some one-pointedness, then we can contemplate. And states of one-pointedness maybe only last a few moments sometimes. Just mind just calms down enough that we know it's more calm, more stable, more firm than before. Other times, if you are on your own at your kuti, you might get very deep. It lasts a long time. All the suffering of the body and the mind disappear. The mind becomes very rested, very firm, very quiet. And then it withdraws out of that and we contemplate. What are we contemplating? We're contemplating body, feelings, mind, mind objects. Four foundations of mindfulness. Contemplating, seeing that they're Anicca dukkha anatta, over and over again. This is the way the Buddha encouraged us to develop wisdom, use these reflections over and over again to break through our basic delusions. You're seeing what is impermanent, but we normally take as permanent contemplating, seeing it, seeing the impermanence, breaking through false perceptions and attachments that we have. And what is impermanent is dukkha. It's unstable, bound for degeneration and change, unreliable, no real source of happiness. What is impermanent, what is unstable, it's not self cannot be taken as any kind of permanent or substantial self. We're learning to train the mind to see this in our experience, this body and mind. Recognize things as just what they are. Body is 32 parts, four elements. Feeling is just feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Mind is just mind. Mind that is wholesome, 
the wholesome mental states we call jettasikas. Mind that is unwholesome. The unwholesome mental states, jettasikas, based in greed, anger, delusion. Dhamma, phenomena, understanding how unwholesome dhammas arise, how the hindrances arise, take over the mind, how the how suffering arises, how craving leads to attachment, leads to becoming, leads to suffering. Understanding how the factors of enlightenment arise. Mindfulness, supporting investigation of the Dhamma, giving rise to pity, joy, tranquility, equanimity. But in the end all these factors are impermanent unsatisfactory not-self. Even the Dhamma that we are developing, the sense of peace, the sense of wisdom and understanding that arises, still is not-self, still is impermanent, not to be grasped at as self. And when you're contemplating Vaitana, you see there's two kinds of Vaitana. There's the Vaitana that arises from the kilesas, as we seek out experiences through our senses, looking for pleasure, pleasant sights, smells, taste, touch. Well, that kind of waitina doesn't last and only leads to more delusion, more craving, more attachment, more delusion. Doesn't lead to lasting happiness doesn't lead to freedom. The other kind of pleasant way to know that we can experience comes from maga, from the practice. You know, the sense of peace and ease that comes through the keeping of precepts, living in a moral way, virtuous way, gives a kind of happiness. That's one kind of way to know, sukha way to know. Practicing mindfulness, meditation, brings up more sukha-vetana, factors of samadhi. Even insight, panya, brings sukha-vetana. The Buddha said seeing impermanence brings the mind experience of pity and pamoja. Joy, tranquility from insight. Just looking at waitana, we have waitana arising through unwholesome experiences, waitana arising through wholesome experiences. In the end, it's just waitana, just what it is. It's not self, it's not a person, a being, me, you. Nothing to be grasped at as self. But still, we can learn the different kinds of waitana that we can experience as human beings. 
Dukkha is the same, Dukkha Vaitana. It's the Dukkha Vaitana that comes through Kilesa and leads to more attachment, more suffering, compounding it, piling it on. There's the Dukkha Vaitana that comes through the practice. And there's Dukkha Vaitana for the ending of Dukkha. Dukkha Vaitana comes through the development of Marga as we sit we'll experience some pain in our legs and our back. We feel tired. As we walk meditation, we feel tired, feel pain, especially as you get older. As we practice restraint and endurance in different situations, with the cold, with the hot, with the rain, with the different aspects of the lifestyle, if this is done with mindfulness and understanding, this can be dukkha waitana for the ending of dukkha. As we learn to reflect in this way, establish mindfulness and contemplate, rather than just reacting to sukha waitana, dukkha waitana, liking it, disliking it, wanting it, not wanting it in the old way, the way of the self or Sakaya Ditti, just understanding Vaitana for what it is, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, coming from wholesome causes or unwholesome causes. State of mind is the same. State of mind that is wholesome, state of mind that is unwholesome, that has greed or doesn't have greed, has anger or doesn't have anger, delusion or doesn't have delusion. If you're having problem with a particular hindrance, a particular kilesa on a daily basis, well just notice how impermanent that might be. There are some days that you're having problems with anger or irritation. It doesn't mean to say you have irritation all the time. It will be a condition that comes up in certain situations or when certain people are around or when you think of them or remember them. But there'll be other times when it's not there. You notice when your mind is free from anger. Or if even when anger has arisen and you're aware, oh, now the mind has anger. You reflect on what the Buddha said, oh, this is something to be abandoned. How do we abandon anger? By turning to non-anger. From turning from ill will to good will. Establishing mindfulness, it might be sim as simple as that. Just turning the mind to reflect in a different way at that moment. The more you notice the times when your mind is free from ill will, the more that's a conditioning factor for non-ill will to arise more often. You become more familiar with it. How does conditioning work? How does the process of craving and attachment leading to suffering, how does it take over the mind? Well, it's what we're familiar with. If we're used to thinking in an angry way, or a greedy way, or in a deluded way, well, the more we get used to that, familiar with that, the more it will happen. 
we start reflecting on this though and turn the mind away, let these things go, abandon greed, abandon anger, abandon delusion, then the mind gets used to that, gets familiar with that. Maybe quite naturally prefers to be with non-greed, non-ill will, non-delusion. It's more pleasant, it's brighter, happier. So even at times when the conditioning, the old conditioning of the kilesas is strong, the mind might quite be willing to work with that because it knows it's better to give up the kilesas and go back to non-greed, non non-ill will, non-delusion. What gives you the patience to work with a mood of ill will or mood of lust with recognizing the benefits of giving up ill will or lust, knowing its drawbacks, knowing the benefits of abandoning it, then you'll, you'll get the patience and the energy to keep working with it until you have abandoned it. The good news is that the Buddha pointed out that the most skillful tool humans can develop is wisdom, panya. It needs the other factors of the path to support it. It needs the sila and the samadhi, the mindfulness. But as a tool, panya is the hardest of all tools. They compare it to the diamond. The mind of an enlightened being is like a diamond. What brings them to enlightenment is having developed this tool of panya, wisdom, sharpened it, perfected it over and over again, just like when you use a, a knife or any kind of grinding tool, any kind of sharp tool to cut things and work with other materials, you need to keep sharpening it. And if you do that, then it works very well. The panya or insight is like a hard metal that you use to work a soft metal. If you have a very hard crowbar, you can do all kinds of things with softer kinds of metal. You can bend thinner sheets of metal or rods of metal if you've got a very hard crowbar. And wisdom is like that. Wisdom is harder than the kilesa. Greed, anger and delusion, however bad they seem, are still soft when they confront wisdom, true wisdom. If you're willing to train your wisdom to really see an dukkha anatta and the things that are deluding you and attach, you're attaching to, sooner or later you'll lever up or cut through your greed, anger and delusion. This is part of nature, this is a reality of nature that wisdom is the hardest, the sharpest, the best cutting tool, the diamond tool. So if we're willing to put the effort into that, contemplating, developing the mindfulness, contemplating over and over again, then it will start to work, it levers away, cuts away, the former delusions and former old habits of 
being greedy and getting angry with things, liking and disliking, wanting this, wanting that, holding on to different aspects of this body, this mind, feelings, perceptions, thoughts. Sankara Kanda is just thought formations can either be wholesome or unwholesome. Can be samudaya, the cause of suffering, or can be maga, the end of suffering. It's up to us to train it, Sankara Kanda. How do we tra train the Sankara Kanda to understand itself? Well, through this, through practicing developing mindfulness and then contemplating, contemplating itself, learning to think correctly, think towards the world correctly, think about our requisites correctly, think about this body, this mind correctly. It's training the Sankara Kanda. In the end, thought is just thought. Wholesome thought is wholesome thought, unwholesome thought is unwholesome thought. Still an Icha Dukkha Anatta, but we have to train it. Little by little, from what we hear outside first, what we read, what we hear, and then learning to use our time wisely to reflect on Dhamma contemplate the Dhamma and when we get very tired of that contemplation we'll go back to just developing mindfulness, resting with mindfulness, with samadhi. Little by little the mind becomes more refined from seeing the coarse mistakes, the coarse unwholesome behavior we have. Gradually we refine that to see the more refined, unwholesome behavior, unwholesome ways of thinking. From the course we work through to the refined. As our wisdom cutting tool improves, then you can cut through and see and cut through even more refined strands of delusion. Attachment to wrong perceptions or the sense of self that forms around different experiences we have, physical or mental. So we have plenty of free time, we're in the middle of a retreat. We can use our time to develop this path, develop the Korwat, develop the Brahmaviharas, develop mindfulness, cultivate wisdom. This is the way we can all progress in the Dhamma, we can all find true peace, true happiness. So I'll leave you with these words to contemplate tonight. <laughs>